God is amazing. He's so big. He's so powerful. We are finite, and he is infinite. When we think about God, think about this. He's eternal. That means he goes on forever. And when you say goes on forever, it says in the Bible, from everlasting to everlasting. When we say God's eternal, it doesn't mean that he just goes on forever. It means that he never had a beginning which we can't comprehend. So he's eternal, he's all-powerful, he can do anything. He's everywhere, which is called omnipresent. He knows everything, which is called omniscient, which means he knows everything. He is a gracious God. He doesn't deal with us. Uh, he doesn't really deal with us as we deserve, let's put it that way. And then he's a holy God. Well, this morning we're going to also think about this aspect, the righteousness of God. Our God is perfectly righteous. Everything he does is righteous. Everything that he does is right. What does all this mean? Well, let me, let me you, you know my background. Before I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I, I, I maybe went to church three times in my life, once when I was six, maybe once when I was 12, maybe more than once when I was 12. But uh, I understood that there was a God, and I didn't know any distinction between God and Jesus. You know, if you said Jesus and God, I thought, well, that's all the same. And, and I was right in one sense. I mean, Jesus is God, and the God the Father is God, but they're not exactly the same. One God and three persons. I just didn't grasp any of that, of course. But I really thought that one day I would stand before God, and uh, I didn't go to church or anything, but I would stand before God, and then he would judge you based on how good you were. If you did more good than bad, you'd probably get to go to heaven. If you didn't do more good than bad, then you wouldn't get to go. And so I thought I could try to be as good as I could be. Well, what I didn't understand is two things. The righteousness of God, how righteous he is and what is expected, and the sinfulness of man, how sinful really all of us are. I did not realize that he is perfectly righteous with no darkness. I did not realize that we're all fallen that there's not one good thing I could ever have done or ever do that would merit salvation. And so when we think about God, He is perfectly righteous. We are completely unrighteous. But God has a plan. And when you think at 1 Corinthians 15, He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. And if you've got questions along the way, stop me. Uh, you can talk about it in your grow groups as well. But three things. We're going to look at God's righteousness. We're going to look at our sinfulness. And then we're going to see God's solution. So you have your handout. I think most of the time we put the answers in there. So you should have them. I just want you to think about it. Let's start with God's righteousness. Let's begin thinking about God. He is righteous. Now, righteousness is more than just the absence of sin. Every aspect of everything he does is always right and good and perfect and just. He is the righteous, perfectly righteous God. Not just absence of sin, but perfectly and righteous. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy. It says, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. He's talking about God. He's righteous. He's upright. He's perfect. He is the rock. All his ways are just. Look at this. This is Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Now, that, that should tell us something. He's righteous, and what he really wants is what? He wants us to be righteous because he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And you might say, wait a minute. What, what did that just say? Who are the upright? The righteous ones. That's what he's saying. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright, the righteous, will behold his face. But a while ago we just said that God's righteous and we're what? 
We're not righteous. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Okay, oh, well, how's this going to work? Well, think about this. God is righteous. He judges righteously. Everything that he does is righteous. This is why Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says this, But because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, one day we're going to stand before what's called the the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be rewarded. And whatever rewards God gives us based on how we served, we can't say, I don't think that's fair, because he's righteous. And then when the unbelievers stand before Jesus Christ, and their names are not found written in the book of life, and he opens the books of deeds, and he judges, and people are separated because they're not found in the book of life, they can't say, you are not what? Fair. He is fair. He's righteous and just. Everything that he does is righteous. In fact, uh, let me go back on that again. He is Psalm seven eleven. He is a righteous judge. Now, not only is he a righteous judge, but his word is righteous. Psalm 119, 164. Seven times a day I praise thee because of your righteous ordinances. The ordinances with the scripture was the Bible. He says your scripture, your word is righteous. So not only does God judge righteously, but the, his word is righteous. And then look at this one. His actions are righteous. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So when you start looking at God, you could say, wow, he's uh, perfectly righteous. Whatever he does is righteous. However he judges is righteous. However he lives is righteous. However his word is righteous. His actions are righteous. And you could sum it up with Isaiah 45, 21, and there is no other God beside me. He's saying it. A righteous God and a Savior. Now, don't you love that verse? Who's speaking? Who's speaking, by the way? This is Isaiah 45, 21. Who's speaking? Say it. Jesus, yeah. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. Who is the Savior? Jesus Christ is the Savior. And we can say it's God, God the Father, God the Father, so loved the world he gave his son Jesus Christ. But who is that actually became a human being and died for us? It's Jesus Christ. So a lot of people, you know, have got these people teaching uh, all over that we don't really need the Old Testament or we shouldn't even study the Old Testament. We shouldn't look at the things there. I, I hate to mention names. Andy Stanley and his church says we need to, he's actually, he says, we need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. It is not needed. No, the Old Testament is basically the foreshadow of everything in the New Testament. And the New Testament completes the Old Testament. They go together and, and it's hard to grasp how the, old, how the New Testament actually fits together if you don't know the Old Testament. You've got to understand from Adam and Eve all the way up how the Bible fits. And so here is Isaiah where Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, after he rose from the grave, uh, there were two men walking from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus? Two guys. And Jesus appeared with them. They didn't recognize him. He fixed it where they couldn't see him. And he asked them what was going on. And they said, are you, are you a stranger around here? Are you new around here? And he said, no, what thing's going on? And they talked about how Jesus died and that they had heard that he rose from the grave, but they didn't know, they didn't see it. Some people had gone to the tomb and it had been empty. And Jesus said, are you guys slow? That's what he said. Are you slow and, and not able to comprehend what the scripture says, that he, the Messiah must suffer and then rise? And then it says, he taught them from the Bible, which is what? The Old Testament about himself. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. He's all through the whole Bible. In fact, the story of the Bible is how the perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using who? 
his son, Jesus Christ. Not just New Testament, it's the whole thing. So in Isaiah, there, there's no other God besides me. Jesus is speaking. There's one God in three persons, God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. He says, a righteous God and Savior. He's the Savior. There's none except me. There's no other Savior. That's why Jesus could say these words, I am the way, what? And the truth, and the what? The life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, because there's no other Savior. There is no other way. So first of all, we see, and we go, this is, this is great because God is really righteous and great. But here's the problem connected with that. We're sinful. We're not righteous. And he says it, that we already looked at that the upright, the righteous, will see his face. But we're not righteous. We're all sinful and fall short of the glory of God. We want to be with God, but unrighteous people can't be with a righteous God. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, what? No, not one. There's not a single righteous person. Isaiah 64 says that all the righteousness of man, Isaiah 64, 6 says, all the righteousness of man are what? Filthy rags. We're all sinners. Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one our own way. We're all sinful. We're all fallen. And so here's the problem. No matter what we do, we can't merit salvation. That's why it's amazing. To, do you hear people say, you need to turn away from your sins, give your life to Jesus, be willing to serve him, do this, do this. They're asking unbelievers to do things to be saved. First of all, you can't do things to be saved, never can. Salvation is a gift by faith alone in Christ alone. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that what? Whoever does what? Believes will never perish but have everlasting life. So when we look at it, we go, no matter what we do, we can't merit salvation. We, we have a, a righteous that we, 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 how are we going to get the righteousness that God demands? So a righteous God cannot overlook our unrighteousness and our sinfulness. And so we could say, I think we're in trouble, right? If you want to look at it from a human standpoint, human standpoint is that God is perfectly righteous, man is unrighteous, and man cannot merit any kind of righteousness to be with God, to be perfectly righteous like God. So God has a solution. And God's solution is simple. He has a plan through his son. We talk about it all the time. If you've had the 2-2 or the 412 or just about any of our studies, we say that the story of the Bible is how this perfect God brings sinful man back to himself. It's God bringing man to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin and rose again, and whoever believes in him has eternal life. And by the way, when you trust Christ and get eternal life, you also get righteousness. And we're going to talk about that. God has a solution. Salvation is always by faith. It doesn't matter if it's Old Testament or New Testament. I remember when I first started uh, studying the Bible as a believer, I read some books where people said, in the Old Testament, you were saved by keeping the law. And in the New Testament, you're saved through grace in Jesus. And then I realized that I don't know of anybody that ever kept the law. So then obviously nobody was saved in the Old Testament if you hold to that view that you have to keep the law. And here's my other question I started studying. I said, well, I found out that the law didn't start to Moses. So from Adam and Eve to Moses, which was a long time, how were those people saved if you were saved by keeping the law? There wasn't even any law. Salvation has always been the same way. And what is it? By faith. Faith in the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come. 
we want to look at what we call the doctrine of imputation or the teaching of imputation. And, and let me let you understand this. The word imputation is really a banking term. It means to credit from one account to another or to put into account. If you, if, if, if you uh, gave me, if you said, Jebbia, this, uh, this is for you, and it was a check for $100, I'd say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to what? Deposit to my account. I'm going to go to the bank and say, I want to put this check in my account. Well, that's called imputing. I'm, that's imput- I'm crediting to my account the $100. The Bible talks about imputation. The Bible talks about crediting. The Bible talks about putting something into account. And so I want you to see this. There are three great imputation in God's Word. You know about them, and let me explain them to you, and, and you can see how they fit together. Most of you, if you've, had, if you've ever had the, the, the 2-2, you know this. You know, uh, we talk about it also in the 412. We talk about it in a lot of different studies. But the first great imputation is this. Adam's sin was imputed to the human race. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, and when Adam rebelled against God and he sinned, that sin was actually imputed to every human being because the Bible says that every human being was inside Adam, and, and so that was credited to them. Romans 5 tells us through one man... Sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed to all men, because all sinned. It actually says that when Adam sinned, every one of us in this room sinned. Every human being ever sinned. And so if you opened up the account, and you said, J.B., I'll find the areas. What has he got? He's got eight fruit. Eight fruit, right? Isn't that what Adam did? He ate the fruit. Okay, so Adam's sin was imputed. Now, somebody says, that doesn't seem fair. Well, first of all, we don't know what fair is because as Isaiah says, his ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens of the earth, so is his ways from our ways. We can't grasp everything. In fact, everything he does is right, so it is fair. But think about this. Football. Our team lines up, ready to snap the ball, and the right guard jumps offside. Who goes back five yards? We no, 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 just the guard jumped off side. He ought to be the only one that goes back five yards. No, when Adam sinned, it passed to who? The whole human race. So the first imputation is we don't really like. We say something like this. Well, if I'd have been there, I probably wouldn't eaten that fruit. No, we'd have probably had been piling them off. <laughs> Somebody get a basket, you know, let's say whatever it is. So the truth is, we all fall. We all sin. So we can't really blame Adam. But the truth is, Adam's sin was imputed to every human being. Now, that's, we say, I don't like that. Well, the second one, we do like. And that's human beings' sins. Mankind's sin, sins were passed to Christ on the cross. Now, you know, when the Jesus Christ, they lifted him on the cross. And what did Jesus Christ do when he was on the cross? He paid for what? For what? All our sins. Who sins? Every, past, present, and future. Listen, Jesus paid for all your sins, and you, you were 2,000 years away from being born, most likely, right? I mean, think about this. So when Jesus Christ, he took our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Oh, I got it right there. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He actually took our sin on himself. First Peter 2.24, he bore in his body our sins on the cross. We always say this, Jesus Christ died on the cross to do what? To pay for our sins. What we don't always understand is our sins were placed on him. 
Now, he had never sinned, right? He was sinless and righteous and perfect because he's God, and yet he became our substitute. And what was imputed to his account? If you said, Jesus' account, what's he got? I mean, it goes on and on. And this is the sin of every human being for all time. So how many sins do you have on your account? Huh? How many sins do you have on your account? Absolutely none, because what, what happened to your sins that were on your account? They've been placed on Christ's account. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says, but namely, that God was in Christ, not counting our trespasses against us. How could he not count our sins against us? Because he took them off us and put them on Jesus. That's called imputation. We, do we like this one? Yes, we say, oh, every sin I've ever done, ever will do, every human being, past, present, and future, from Adam and Eve all the way up, every human being's sins have been placed on Christ. And we go, wow, that is amazing. So Adam sinned to us, and our sins to Jesus. Now, let me just say something. That doesn't save you. Because your sins have been removed does not save you. What do you have to have to be with him, according to the verse that we saw? You have to have his what? What? Righteousness. Yeah, listen. Every human being in the world's sins have been placed on Christ. He is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. So how many people in the world have sins on their account? Nobody. Where is it? It's on Christ. So how does one have righteousness? Because unbelievers, even without sin, aren't perfectly righteous. In fact, nobody is perfectly righteous. So how do we get the righteousness that God demands? Adam's sin to us. Our sins to Christ. But look at this third one. Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. Whenever a person puts their faith in Christ as their Savior, they trust in Him to give them eternal life, what does He give them that exact moment? His righteousness. So if I said to you, how many sins are on your account? Are you perfectly righteous in your standing before God? What? Yes. Every one of you? If you say, well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? The moment you believed, what did he give you? His righteousness. So how righteous are you? You're perfectly righteous. Look at this right here. It says, even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. How do you get the righteousness of God? By faith. He says, you get the righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for everybody who believes. If you believe in Jesus Christ, what do you get? You get his righteousness. Philippians 3, 9, being found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of God, which comes on the basis of faith. Every one of us in this room, the moment you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he deposited, imputed to your account his righteousness. So how righteous are you? Not perfectly righteous. Where are you right now? Seated where? You're seated in the heavenly places. That's your position. Your position, you've been raised up and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and you are seated with him, and you are perfectly righteous. 
Now, experientially, which is down here, as we go through Christian life, we're sinful. We still fall short of God's glory. We may try to live right, and sometimes we mess up, sometimes we don't. We confess our sin. We walk in the light. We try to abide in Him. And yet, positionally, we are perfectly righteous. That's the doctrine of imputation. Romans 4, 5, to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, the word imputed. The faith is imputed for righteousness. So are we righteous people? Are we perfectly righteous people? Yes. Now that's the doctrine of imputation. Are you glad of the doctrine of imputation. Now, we'd say, I don't like the first one where Adam's sin was given to us. I really like the second one where all our sins were placed on Christ, but I really like the third one that the moment I believe, God gives me righteousness. Think about this. What if, what if you went somewhere? I'm just, this is something you just, I'm just trying to make it more uh, concrete for you. You went somewhere and you said, oh, I'd like to buy that car. That is a great car. And, and you say, how much does that car cost? And they say, it's $80,000 car. You go, whoa, that is, that's nice. You know, and so that's a really nice car. And then you say, but I don't have $80,000. And then Susie comes up and goes, I just put into your account $80,000. Now you have $80,000. And you go, so I didn't have it, but now I what? I have it. How righteous were you before you put your faith in Christ? You weren't righteous. You had sin was gone because it's gone for everybody. Sin's not the issue. Sin has never been the issue. All the people out there saying you need to clean up your life, you need to get your act together, you need to repent of your sins. People say that. The Bible never says that, by the way. But people say repent of your sins and give your life, do that. Listen, you're asking people to deal with sin when sin's not even the issue. What's the issue? The issue is really faith and righteousness in life. How do you get eternal life? By faith. How do you get righteousness? By faith. How do you get forgiveness? By faith. It all comes by faith. And so here we see that whenever you believe, you have it. So by faith in Christ, God gives to believers the righteousness that is needed to be with him. Let me give you a, a few applications, and then we, we'll, have a, we'll have a couple of minutes that we can do some questions if you want to. So when we think about righteousness, we are unrighteous, but, and we must be righteous. So what does God do? He takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness when we believe. So let me give you some applications, and then we'll, we'll open it up for some questions. Let's, let us understand that God is righteous and man is sinful. I don't understand that. I didn't understand that. I understand it now. But we go to see people out there in our community all the time that think if they could try to be good, they could get to God. That's the lie of the devil. Be good and God will love you. You can't be good and God already loves you. And so the lie is that you try to live a good life. You try to be as good as you can be. And they're not understanding how righteous God is. Let's understand that God is righteous and man is sinful. You can't measure up. I had a friend that one time said, it's sort of like you don't understand that if you played uh, basketball in the eighth grade, and then one day you look and say, you know, I bet I could play basketball at OSU. You have no idea how good those people are compared to how good you were in the seventh grade. You know what I'm saying? You just don't understand it. Uh, but you just say, well, they look, I think I could shoot that way. No, I don't think you can. You just think you can. But anyway, let's understand how righteous God is and how, un how sinful we are. Let me ask you a question. Uh, experientially, not positionally. Are we sinful? Do we sin every day? Do we sin with our thoughts? Do we sin with our actions? So if it depends on us in any way, shape, or form, we ain't got a chance, right? 
Where are all our sins that we have done and will do? They've been placed on Christ and paid for. And when we believe in Jesus, he gives us his perfect righteousness. So let's understand the doctrine of imputation. First of all, Adam's sin to mankind. And that's an amazing thing, Romans 5.12. And what it basically says is that Adam was the head of the human race, and when he sinned, we're all made in the likeness of Adam. And it's passed through the man. That's why when Jesus was born in the world, he wasn't born of Joseph. He's born of Mary and the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus came into the world not as a sinful person. If he'd have been born of a human being, of a man, he would be sinful. Because that's how it's passed down. Adam's sin to mankind. Mankind's sin to Christ on the cross. You could put mankind's sins because it's not just his sin, although we could say sins to Christ on the cross. And then last but not least, Christ's righteousness to the believer. I think the first time I ever grasped that, it just, it just overwhelmed me to realize that when I trusted Christ, he gave me his righteousness. So that means we're as righteous as the living God because he imputed it to our account. That's our position. The third thing is just realize that by faith in Jesus Christ, believers are given God's righteousness. Not by our works, not by our goodness, but faith alone in Christ alone. God deals with every human being. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? That shall he also reap. This has nothing to do with eternal life aspect. This is saying that your actions have consequences, both positive and negative, And when you do what is right, what does he give you? Rewards. And you do that is wrong, what do you get? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every child he receives. So he's just basically saying that God uh, deals with our actions, how we live and what we do. The consequences of sin go on forever, even though the payment has already been made. Listen, if you said, I'm going to lie, steal, and, and since Jesus has already paid for it and it's already paid for, I don't even have to worry about it. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences for it because I might get caught and been put in jail. So there are consequences. For whom the Lord loves, he chases and scourges every son he receives. For, for who, if you, whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, what do you reap? Corruption. So it, that's all he's saying. Does that help a little bit? That's what he's really saying. What else? Any other input? Questions? Touch on that part? Okay. Um, we talked about that in Matthew already. She says, what's about the part about if you forgive others, God will forgive you, but if you don't forgive uh, others, God won't forgive you? He's talking about our fellowship with him, not our relationship. And the truth is this, that if you do me wrong and I don't forgive you, I'm out of fellowship not only with you, but I'm out of fellowship with God. And God says, as long as I'm not forgiving you, then I'm out of fellowship with him. And so that's what that, and then, but if I do forgive you, then I'm back in fellowship with him. So that's what he's talking about there, fellowship issues. Okay, the question is, during the tribulation, as the, the church is raptured out, so all the believers are taken off the face of the earth, and then the Antichrist signs a peace pact with the nation of Israel, and that actually starts the tribulation. So she says, during the tribulation, we know that there will be people, in fact, many people will trust in Christ as Savior. How are they going to know about him if the believers are all gone? Well, the truth is... Uh, that there, there will be the Bible, there will be the Holy Spirit, there will be all kind of stuff. But at the beginning of the tribulation, God raises up 
144,000 Jewish believers, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, to begin to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And so that, it starts with them. There are also, in the first three and a half years, two prophets that are at Jerusalem. They look like Moses and Elijah. When I say that, because they do the things that Moses and Elijah did. And so the message gets proclaimed. Uh, we've actually said that we need to put together uh, a five-minute little video and put it on our website that says, if the rapture has happened and you are left behind, here's what you need to know. And put that on there. That's, that's really true. I mean, people don't think about that. But there will be people believe. In fact, I think even before the Antichrist sets, uh, makes the peace pact, we don't know how long it will be from the rapture until the peace pact. It could, be, it could be years. We don't know. It doesn't say. We know there's going to be turmoil on the earth. I think there will be people believe in Jesus Christ, who heard the message but never trusted him, after we're gone and because of all of the message on the world, I think some of them will trust Christ based on what they had already heard or maybe go to the Bible and say, I remember people saying something about this. So I think that's how that will be. we got time for maybe one more question, if, if anybody else wants to ask one more. Oh, you're exactly right. He said that the, the letter Philemon... Most of you know the book about Philemon. It's, it's the first book I ever studied on my own because it only had like 25 verses. I said, I'm going to study a book of the Bible on my own. I think I can do that. And I looked for the shortest one I could find, and it only had 25 verses. So I thought, but I didn't realize that the doctrine of imputation is there because as Paul writes to Philemon about his runaway slave named Onesimus, he says, if Onesimus has done anything wrong, owes you anything, Put it on my account, I will pay it. That's imputation.